We're starting in Acts chapter 1 and verses 6 to 11. When I finish that, Phil will be up front again for a few minutes and then we'll look at 1 Corinthians after that. So Acts chapter 1 verses 6 to 11. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who's been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way that you've seen him go into heaven. that Richard. I'm going to get this guy out of the way. All right, good morning. Uh, I've already introduced myself, crossed that bit off. Uh, it's, it's, it's lovely to be here um, this morning uh, to, to speak to God's word um, for us. Um, over the school holidays, uh, our kids, they've been doing some, some sleepovers with grandparents. Um, they love that. Uh, the grandparents love that. We really love that. And uh, so Joanne and I, last week, uh, took the opportunity to go out and get a movie, uh, have dinner and go to a movie. That, that's the whole story. I'm just gloating. Uh, sorry, parent. Uh, no, there's more to it. Um, we watched a movie called Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. Uh, some of you may be aware of it. Uh, I'm going to highlight at the outset, this is not to everyone's taste. Uh, it's a bit wacky. It's, it's an absurdist take on nihilism, where uh, a woman named Evelyn, uh, who's a completely unremarkable Chinese-American immigrant, uh, she runs a laundromat, she gets in trouble with a tax office, she struggles with family relationships with her father and her husband and her daughter, and she also gets in touch with all the ultimate, uh, alternate versions of herself across parallel universes. It's a bit wacky. Uh, but it's great. Um, now, I'm not going to give you any spoilers, um, but through an a series of increasingly bizarre events, the end result is that uh, it's about the value of loving um, your family, making peace with the life that you have. Uh, now, that's, that's all well and good. That sounds great. But the place it comes from, it doesn't come from any particular source of meaning. It comes from complete nihilism. Uh, the conclusion that nothing matters and there is no meaning. So we've just got to make meaning from what we have, make the most of it. Now, I genuinely like this movie but, and its positive conclusions, but the road that it takes to get there is, it, it couldn't really be more at odds with the Christian worldview, could it? And I can't help but wonder if, me, 
if you have a meaning in life that is derived from a conclusion that there is no meaning and you have to make it up yourself, ultimately that's going to fail. It's going to, it doesn't have a firm foundation. So with that in mind, uh, this morning we're going to be talking about the resurrection of Jesus. Um, and I have a couple of questions I think will help us get started. What is the resurrection good for? Like, why, why does it actually matter? Uh, th- there's going to be a number of answers to that, uh, but, uh, and I think if I took answers from, from amongst you, I'd get a lot of different answers. There's a lot of different aspects to the, to the resurrection, and it's a really big topic. And, you know, we're obviously not going to be able to uh, cover that all this morning. Um, it's the sort of thing that deserves a whole series of, of uh, sermons. Uh, but we're just going to touch on a few particular aspects of it today. Now, unfortunately, we have a bit of a habit um, in the church um, in recent times of underselling the resurrection. Uh, it's, it's just a bit too easy to just kind of tack it on to uh, as, as kind of the back end of our focus on the cross. Not because we don't value the resurrection necessarily, but it just tends to be overshadowed by the cross. Uh, now, I recall when I first started uh, my master's degree at, at Bible College of South Australia, we had a particular theology textbook uh, called, uh, by a guy called uh, Millard Erickson. Now, Erickson, he wasn't too bad in most respects, uh, not exactly an invigorating book by any stretch. Um, my usual comment about Erickson is he's inoffensive. Uh, it's not ringing endorsement, is it? Uh, but this, this textbook, it was over a thousand pages, now, how many pages do you think that would have had dedicated to the resurrection? One measly page. I'm very happy to say that we no longer use Ericsson at the Bible College of South Australia. Uh, it's, it's a much bigger topic than that, and we need to give it its, its, uh, its, its full value for a good understanding of Christ's work. So today we're going to be thinking about the resurrection uh, more specifically... And considering how the resurrection should shape our thinking and our lives, um, and see if we can develop a firmer foundation for our lives than Evelyn and her nihilism. So, uh, please note that my notes are longer than one page. Uh, In a while, um, we're going to get Richard back up to uh, read us some of 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, But first, we're just going to look at these few verses in Acts uh, just briefly. Now, I understand Colin talked about the ascension uh, last week, am I right? Fabulous. So some of this is just going to be revision for you. Uh, And, you know, you can pull me up afterwards if I get it wrong. Uh, All right. Now, these first verses of of Acts, it feels like we're just getting stuck into the beginning of Acts. We're we're waiting for the action to happen. We've already read uh, about the ascension, um, and it's easy to skip over them a little bit. We're quite familiar with the idea of ascension. Uh, After Jesus was resurrected, he hung around for 40 days, did some cool stuff, and then he went into heaven. Uh, and it's like, it's like the final scene of a movie. Like, all the drama's been resolved, the protagonist rides off into the sunset, credits roll. But it turns out, as you'll be well aware now, uh, that the ascension, it's not just a happy ending. It's not really even an ending at all. Um, it's a major element of Christ's work. Now, we could spend many hours uh, talking about the ascension, uh, happily, well, I'd be happy, the kids' workers might not be so happy. Uh, but this morning, we're just going to pick up on a few key points uh, that, are, that are particularly relevant to the way that we think about the resurrection. So first of all, 
Uh, the manner of the ascension is really important for us to note. Uh, verse 9 uh, in Acts 1 there, it tells us that he was taken up before their very eyes. Or as the, author, uh, the same author puts it at the end of Luke, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Now, did you notice the bit where it says he unzipped his now unnecessary mansuit, uh, stepped out of it and ascended into heaven as the pure spirit that he is, with clear instructions of, to his disciples how to dry clean his now useless mansuit? That's not there, is it? Uh, no. He ascended physically, didn't he? Uh, he ascended into heaven physically. It was in the flesh. He was taken up into heaven and he wasn't there anymore. So at Christmas, we celebrate the birth of Jesus, uh, which we call the Incarnation. God the Son entered into history by being born as a human in the flesh. Now, if we fast forward 30-something years, uh, we see that the Incarnation, it didn't stop with the Ascension. Uh, he didn't leave humanity behind, nor will He leave it behind. And Compared to those final verses of Luke, um, where here in Acts 1, Luke is repeating himself about describing the, uh, the ascension. It's both at the end of Luke and the beginning of Acts. We get a little bit more details than in Luke. Uh, so Luke considered the ascension important enough that he said, actually, let's put it in both. We'll, we'll finish his gospel of Luke um, with the ascension. We'll start the, um, the Acts of the Apostles with it. He thought it was uh, pretty important, clearly. So if we, if we think again about verses 10 and 11 in Acts 1 there, it says, They were looking up intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, Why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way that he, you have seen him go into heaven. I would like to suggest at this point that, uh, in fairness to the disciples, that why do you stand here looking into the sky? Given the circumstances, that seems like an unfair question. I'm pretty sure I'd be staring up into the sky as well, uh, but I digress. Uh, the point is that just as he was taken into heaven physically, so too will he return in the flesh as God incarnate. Uh, now, there's obviously a lot more that we could say about the ascension, about Christ reigning as the promised Messiah, about uh, presenting himself as a sacrifice for us in the heavenly tabernacle, um, or about him sending the Holy Spirit to dwell uh, within his people. But the main takeaway for us today, uh, for our, our present circumstances, uh, is that if Christ ascended bodily, and he will return bodily, then his resurrection matters. It wasn't temporary. Um, it wasn't a brief stage uh, that could be discarded once it had served its purpose. It was and is forever. So the ascension, amongst many other things, it shows us that the resurrection matters because Jesus is still the resurrected Jesus. Now, with that being the case... How should we think about the resurrection? Uh, once again, an enormous question, uh, lots of different aspects to it. But I want to think, us to think this morning about how the resurrection shapes the way that we see the world, uh, how it should shape the way that we live. And for this, we're going to turn to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15, 
uh, Richard is going to come up and read for us just a few sections of it. It's a very long chapter. Um, we're just going to take a few bits out of it. So I'm going to invite Richard up, and then we'll keep going. So we're going to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 <clears throat> and verses 12 to 28. So Paul writes, But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are, all, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits. Then, when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority and power. For he must reign <coughs> until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. Then moving along to verse 42. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable, it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonour. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth, 
the second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed, in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. Thank you, Richard. Sorry for swiping your microphone. All right, I'm just going to put this guy up a bit. Okay. So, there's a lot going on in that chapter, isn't there? And that's only just parts of it that we read. Uh, but it's going to help us with how we answer this question of how we should think about the resurrection. Uh, so the first question to ask ourselves, I think, is why does Jesus' bodily resurrection matter? Um, we've seen in the fa past few weeks that Luke was, he was at pains. Um, I should have edited that. You haven't been looking at Luke. Uh, we were at Tonsley, though. Uh, if you were to look at uh, the last uh, couple of chapters of Luke, you see he really is at pains to, to demonstrate that um, the resurrection is, is physical, it's, it's bodily. And uh, the ascension, it shows us that it wasn't temporary. So why does that matter so much? Now, it's, it's quite common for us uh, to treat the resurrection as a proof uh, that Jesus really was who he claimed to be. Uh, the resurrection was, was the grand finale, the most spectacular miracle, uh, and the great supernatural act which proved who Jesus was. Now, that's all absolutely true. Uh, but if we left it at that, we'd actually have a bit of an impoverished view of the resurrection. There's so much more to it. Uh, you might also uh, hear about it being talk that, uh, talked about in terms of the resurrection being proof that Christ's uh, work on the cross, his sacrifice, that it was effective. Uh, that the resurrection showed that the sacrifice of the cross was effective, that Christ had provided redemption uh, for his people, and that he himself was vindicated. Now, again, all entirely true. 
But we need to take it a bit further than that as well. Uh, because the resurrection, it's more than just a token of, of cosmic authenticity uh, for the cross, like it's some sort of a cosmic receipt showing that you know, the, the cross has paid for something. If we step back and look at the resurrection, it's not just a receipt, it's not just a, a sign of authenticity, but it's actually what the, the cross purchased. It's what was paid for. Let's have a look at 1 Corinthians 15, uh, a few verses and a few details, and we're going to spell that out a little bit. So first of all, you'll note that the name Adam comes up uh, a few times in this chapter. Uh, first in verse 22, then again in, uh, from verse 45. To start with, Adam and Jesus here are being contrasted. So in verses 21 and 22, where Adam is associated with death, Christ is associated with life and with resurrection. But then later in the chapter, it's not quite so straightforward. It's not just a direct contrast, is it? Now, there's also some degree of equivalence between them. And Jesus is referred to as the second Adam and the last Adam. So what's going on with all the Adams? Now, Paul isn't referring here to Adam just as an individual, um, just one guy that happened to be first in line in the creation queue. As the ancestor for everyone, Adam is here as the representative of all of humanity. Uh, Because what he did, it affected all of humanity to come. Now, verse 21 tells us that death came to humanity through one man, Adam. uh, Because sin brought God's curse and God's judgment on all of creation. Now, that's exactly what we read in uh, Genesis 3 as well, isn't it? Uh, that uh, God punished Adam and Eve for their sin and he ejected them from the garden so that they would no longer have access to the tree of life. So as the progenitor of humanity, as the ancestor of everyone, Adam sinned and that resulted in death for everyone. Now in this sense, the contrast with Jesus here, it's pretty obvious. Um, Adam brought sin and death to all of humanity But Jesus' death and resurrection brings life. Um, It brings life to all of those who trust in him. Uh, Now, that's that's completely true. But, like we said, there's more to it. Uh, Because Jesus isn't just contrasted with Adam, he's also called the last Adam. There's some kind of equivalence between them. So, what is it? Now, it comes down to Adam being that representative for humanity and setting the path for everyone that would come after him. Now, this is exactly what Jesus also did. Um, And over in uh, Romans 5, verse 14, Paul explicitly states that Adam was the pattern or the type of the one to come, Jesus. But where Adam brought death, Jesus brought life. Jesus is like Adam, therefore, because he fundamentally and permanently altered humanity for all that would follow him. So he is the last Adam because he would bring humanity into its final, perfect and eternal state. We'll come back to that in a minute. So what does being the last Adam here have to do with the resurrection? Well, it's right there in verse 20, isn't it? Um, And again in verse 23, 
where Paul talks of Christ's resurrection as first fruits. Now, first fruits, uh, you may uh, be aware, uh, it's a very particular term that was used in the Old Testament. It was used for as, as an offering to be brought to the Lord. Uh, in Leviticus 23, it describes what they were meant to do. Um, it describes the instruction to the Israelites to bring the very first sheaf of grain that they harvest as an offering to God. So the first fruits is the first of the harvest, but it also represents the whole of the harvest. That they're bringing that, uh, that first sheaf of grain as a sacrifice to God was an acknowledgement uh, to God that He provides everything. It's the first of the harvest, but it represents the whole harvest. Well, so too with Christ's resurrection, Paul tells us. Christ is to be resurrected, uh, but as the last Adam, the, re the representative of humanity, we know that those who come after Him will likewise be resurrected. So, one of the main topics of 1 Corinthians 15 is the discussion of what kind of body uh, will be our resurrection body. Now, the answer Paul gives here is, is a lot more conceptual than concrete, um, and we're going to actually sidestep the details um, for today, apart from just a couple of points that we're going to make. Now, first of all, these bodies, these resurrection bodies, where compared to our current bodies, uh, our original bodies, which are weak um, and are perishable, these resurrection bodies will be imperishable and glorious. Now, there's an easy mistake to make here in this chapter about this as well, uh, because Paul talks about spiritual bodies, you may have noticed. So it's tempting to think when he's talking about spiritual bodies that he's talking about something that's immaterial, uh, that it's no longer physical, uh, as though we'll be just uh, pure spirits floating around, uh, freed from physicality altogether. But that's not actually what uh, Paul means here at all. Uh, Remember, these are still bodies. Uh, they, they're physical by definition. That's what a body is. And we know that because we've already seen one of these resurrection bodies in action, haven't we? Uh, we've seen it in Jesus' resurrected body. He's the first fruits, remember? He's the first of the resurrected body, and we've seen it. He could be touched. He could eat and drink. And we also need to remember the empty tomb, that this body that he, this new resurrected body that he had, is not a brand new body in the sense that you know the old body body was crumpled in the corner because no one needed it anymore. Uh, it's not a replacement for the old body, but it's a transformation of the old body. So a spiritual body that Paul is talking about here, it's still a physical body, but it is empowered and it's characterized by the work of the Holy Spirit. It's in the image of the risen Jesus Christ, who is presently in heaven, awaiting His return. So here we have a snapshot of the resurrection. Jesus Christ, having died on the cross on Good Friday, He was resurrected into new life on Easter Sunday, into a transformed and glorious resurrection body. So as the last Adam, his resurrection is the beginning, uh, it's the model, and it's the guarantee of that same resurrection for all of those who turn to Him, the people of the risen King. Now, 
it'd be understandable at this point to wonder if this isn't all just a little bit academic still. Um, on one hand, Jesus' resurrection, that happened uh, 2,000 years ago. Uh, on the other hand, our own resurrection bodies, um, they still await us at some undefined point in the future. It's kind of like my boys. Um, they love to bound in our room first thing in the morning, say on a Monday morning, and ask very eagerly what we're having to dinner on, set for, on Saturday that weekend. Uh, now, they're very keen to know the answer, but it really isn't something that changes their life at all. And, you know, frankly, the idea of planning that far ahead in our household is kind of laughable anyway. But they persist. They want to know what's going on in the future, even though, for our perspective, that changes nothing for their lives. Like, wait until about 5 p.m. on Saturday afternoon, we'll tell you what's for dinner. So if we think about it in that way, we say, why is the resurrection business so important for us now? We're coming from something that happened a long time in the past, we're waiting for something to happen in the future. What's the relevance now? What difference does it make? So it's going to help us um, at this point to, to zoom right out and look at that big picture. So when God created Adam and Eve in the garden, their fall into sin, it wasn't some unforeseen complication. Uh, Adam and Eve in the garden, it was never supposed to be the end point of humanity and creation. Now, remember, I mentioned uh, earlier from Romans 5, uh, 5, verse 14, that Adam was the pattern of the one to come, Jesus. Um, Christ didn't come into the world just to fix it back to its original state. It wasn't some cosmic control-alt-delete, reboot the system, and hopefully it works better when it turns back on. It's... Jesus didn't come into the world only to correct what was broken, to fix it up to where it was before, he came to perfect it. He came to perfect what was still incomplete and immature. So the focus of resurrection is not just on the, the uh, women finding the tomb empty early on that first Easter Sunday, and it's not just on the, that hilltop outside Bethany 40 days later where Jesus ascended into heaven. As the last Adam, as the first fruits of the new creation, the focus of the resurrection is on Revelation 21 and 22, where we see the resurrected Christ reigning over his resurrected people in the new creation forever and ever. That's where it's all pointing. So this is the goal of all creation, its purpose, its destiny, that Christ's work is bringing about. When we see the resurrection, we see the new creation is breaking through. And we can see our place in it as the people of the risen King. So this is the great drama that is playing out on the grand stage of history. That God, through His work, through His Son and His Holy Spirit, He's bringing it into fruition. So we started this morning talking about Evelyn and her alternate selves across the multiverse. Now, she concluded that there's no meaning, and that, so that we need to make meaning from those around us. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it shows us our place in that great story, doesn't it? It shows us that not only does the universe have meaning and purpose, but that it has a meaning and purpose given to it by its creator, Jesus Christ. 
And he invites us to take part of that story, to take part of that purpose. It is a great and beautiful thing to see our place in that great story through Jesus Christ, our Lord and our risen Saviour. But it still kind of leaves us with a question though, doesn't it? Now, to return to, the, to my boys and the dinner menu analogy, we might know what's for dinner next weekend, but how does that actually make a difference to our lives now? I'm going to drop the analogy from now on, because for them it really doesn't make any difference at all. Um, but for us it does. Um, and we need to work out what does it mean to live in light of the resurrection? Now, Paul, he clearly thinks it makes a big difference. Look at that last verse of the chapter with me, uh, in verse uh, 58. So he's gone through this extended discussion of Jesus' resurrection and ours, all the way through 1 Corinthians 15. It's a very long chapter. He's addressing a number of different topics within it, all surrounding the resurrection. Come to the end of it, what's his conclusion? He concludes, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters... Stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So for Paul, this was a great motivation to stand firm, to be confident that work in the Lord is valuable. Now, if we're looking at elsewhere in the New Testament, we'd see the same idea coming up. Uh, let me read to you from Colossians 3, verses 1 to 2. It says, since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Again, this is all coming out of the resurrection. This cosmic perspective, this understanding of Christ's resurrection and our place in it, it shapes our entire frame of reference. It should color every aspect of our lives. So with that in mind, to finish up this morning, let's look at applying that in three different areas. Uh, there's lots more that we could apply it to, but I'm just going to take some three examples to help uh, make some um, connect the dots a little bit. Uh, first of all, it shapes the way we see creation, doesn't it? Now, through history, uh, creation or physical creation... It's often had a bit of a bad rap. Uh, Douglas Adams, some of you may know him, he's the author of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy novels. He put it like this. In the beginning, the universe was created. This has made a lot of people very angry and has widely been regarded as a bad move. Now, he's being kind of facetious there. But there have been numerous traditions throughout history, uh, both within Christianity and outside of it, that see the physical world as, as evil. Now, in the early centuries of the church, uh, there was a movement known as Gnosticism uh, that held that creation was evil and that salvation only uh, lay in being able to transcend physicality, to move away from the physical, to have the secret knowledge that would let us escape physicality. Now, uh, a number of the church fathers, like uh, Irenaeus of Lyon and in the second century, they dedicated themselves to fighting against such a view because it was making a lot of ground, but they could see that it was bankrupt. Because uh, uh, since then, however successful they were at the time, echoes of that Gnosticism 
have, have continued to echo through the ages, and it, and it comes up periodically. But the resurrection tells us that Gnosticism, or that any of you that sees, uh, that sees physicality as evil, is empty. Now, Jesus has redeemed his people, not into disembodied spirits, but into a physical new creation. And he himself is the cornerstone and the first fruits. So the, re the resurrection, it tells us that just as God declared creation to be good in Genesis 1, the new creation is very, very good. It's part of who we are to live in, in creation, to be caring for it uh, as part of our mandate from the beginning. So just like our bodies, our creation may be tainted and it's subject to decay, but it isn't destined for annihilation. It's destined for a spectacular redemption and renewal. It'll be transformed. So as humans, redeemed and belonging to the true and perfect human Jesus Christ, let's take our creation mandate seriously in caring for it whether it's in our own personal habits and lifestyles, uh, whether it's what we advocate for, how we engage with politics, uh, let's follow Christ's lead who has shown us that creation is of great worth. The resurrection, uh, it should also move us to kingdom work, uh, to ministering to those around us. Now, that last verse of uh, 1 Corinthians 15, it, it speaks volumes, doesn't it? Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. It isn't in vain, because we know that we have a sure hope in Jesus' resurrection and our own. So our work is for a purpose that under God, it will flourish in resurrection life. So as children of the resurrection, as the people of the risen King, let's serve each other gladly in the knowledge that what we do, whether it's setting up for church, for teaching in the kids' program, uh, sharing the gospel for, uh, to those around us, any of these things, they're not in vain. But finally, we also have a message of hope. Now, we're here as Christ ambassadors, uh, as representatives of His kingdom. It's already broken through and it's waiting its full uh, consummation in the new creation. So when we see ourselves as part of that grand story, we have a sure hope ahead of us, a confidence that what is to come is perfect and glorious because of what we've already seen in the resurrection of Jesus, the last Adam and the first fruits of the new creation. So the resurrection drives out fear. Now, we absolutely feel the heaviness of creation groaning under the weight of sinful humanity, but we also know that it will be redeemed and made new. We lament for the brokenness and the pain in ourselves and in those around us because of sin, but we know the resurrected Jesus and the sure hope that we have in Him. There's a lot to lament in the world, and it's, it's right for us to lament that pain and suffering in a world that is turned away from God. But if that leads us into despondency and into despair, then we haven't understood the resurrection of Jesus, have we? The resurrection of Jesus Christ, it gives us hope, a sure hope, because the new creation has broken through, 
His, cre- his kingdom has begun. And just like those angels told the disciples on that hilltop outside of Bethany, he is coming back the same way that he left. So with that message of hope, that clear picture of our place in God's great drama, I think the only appropriate way for us to finish is to offer praise to our resurrected Lord. So join with me in prayer. Father in heaven, we give you great praise for the glorious news of your resurrected Son. That despite our sin, that you have sent your Son into the world to redeem it. That those who follow him have a sure hope in his resurrection and a sure hope in our own as we long for the day when new creation comes to its full fruition, where we live uh, eternally in the new creation, in our resurrected bodies, living under the reign of the resurrected Christ. But Father, while we await that glorious day, please have us shape our minds and our hearts by that knowledge. Help us be people of the resurrected King. Father, through your Spirit, empower us and change us in the knowledge that work in the Lord is not in vain, because we do have a sure hope. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.